are listening to the However Improbable podcast. The Valley of Fear by Arthur Conan Doyle Read by Dan Height Part 2 The Scourers Chapter 7 The Trapping of Bertie Edwards As McMurdo had said, the house in which he lived was a lonely one, and very well suited for such a crime as they had planned. It was on the extreme fringe of the town and stood well back from the road. In any other case, the conspirators would have simply called out their man, as they had many a time before, and emptied their pistols into his body. But in this instance, it was very necessary to find out how much he knew how he knew it, and what had been passed on to his employers. It was possible that they were already too late, and that the work had been done. If that was indeed so, they could at least have their revenge upon the man who had done it. But they were hopeful that nothing of great importance had yet come to the detective's knowledge, as otherwise, they argued, he would not have troubled to write down and forward such trivial information as McMurdo claimed to have given him. However, all this they would learn from his own lips. Once in their power, they would find a way to make him speak. It was not the first time they had handled an unwilling witness. McMurdo went to Hobson's patch as agreed. The police seemed to take particular interest in him that morning, and Captain Marvin, he who had claimed the old acquaintance with him in Chicago, actually addressed him as he waited at the station. McMurdo turned away and refused to speak with him. He was back from his mission in the afternoon and saw McGinty at the Union House. "'He's coming,' he said. "'Good,' said McGinty. The giant was in his shirt-sleeves, with chains and seals gleaming athwart his ample waistcoat, and a diamond twinkling through the fringe of his bristling beard. Drink and politics had made the boss a very rich as well as powerful man.' The more terrible, therefore, seemed that glimpse of the prison or the gallows which had risen before him the night before. "'Do you reckon he knows much?' he asked anxiously. McMurdo shook his head gloomily. "'He's been here some time, six weeks at the least. I guess he didn't come into these parts to look at the prospect. If he has been working among us all that time with the railroad money at his back, I should expect that he has got results.' and that he has passed them on. "'There's not a weak man in the lodge,' cried McGinty. "'True as steel, every man of them. "'And yet, by the Lord, there is that skunk Morris. "'What about him? "'If any man gives us away, it would be he. "'I've a mind to send a couple of the boys round before evening "'to give him a beating up and see what they can get from him.' "'Well, there would be no harm in that.' McMurdo answered. I won't deny that I have a liking for Morris and would be sorry to see him come to harm. He has spoken to me once or twice over lodge matters, and though he may not see them the same as you or I, he never seemed the sort that squeals. But still it is not for me to stand between him and you. I'll fix the old devil, said McGinty with an oath. I've had my eye on him this year past. "'Well, you know best about that,' 
McMurdo answered. But whatever you do must be tomorrow, for we must lie low until the Pinkerton affair is settled up. We can't afford to set the police buzzing, today of all days. True for you, said McGinty, and we'll learn from Bertie Edwards himself where he got his news, if we have to cut his heart out first. Did he seem to scent a trap? McMurdo laughed. I guess I took him on his weak point, he said. If he could get on a good trail of the scourers, he's ready to follow it into hell. I took his money. McMurdo grinned as he produced a wad of dollar notes. And as much more when he has seen all my papers. What papers? Well, there are no papers, but I filled him up about constitutions and books of rules and forms of membership. He expects to get right down to the end of everything before he leaves. Faith, he's right there, said McGinty grimly. Didn't he ask you why you didn't bring him the papers? As if I would carry such things, and me, a suspected man, and Captain Marvin after speaking to me this very day at the depot. Aye, I heard of that, said McGinty. I guess the heavy end of this business is coming on to you. We could put him down an old shaft when we've done with him, but however we work it, we can't get past the man living at Hobson's Patch and you being there today. McMurdo shrugged his shoulders. If we handle it right, they can never prove the killing, said he. No one can see him come to the house after dark, and I'll lay to it that no one will see him go. Now, see here, counselor. I'll show you my plan, and I'll ask you to fit the others into it. You will all come in good time. Very well. He comes at ten. He is to tap three times, and me to open the door for him. Then I'll get behind him and shut it. He's our man, then. That's all easy and plain. Yes, but the next step wants considering. He's a hard proposition. He's heavily armed. I fooled him proper, and yet he is likely to be on his guard. Suppose I show him right into a room with seven men in it, where he expected to find me alone. There is going to be shooting, and somebody is going to be hurt. That's so. And the noise is going to bring every damned copper in the township on top of it. I guess you're right. This is how I should work it. You will all be in the big room, same as you saw when you had a chat with me. I'll open the door for him, show him into the parlor beside the door, and leave him there while I get the papers. That will give me the chance of telling you how things are shaping. Then I will go back to him with some faked papers. As he is reading them, I will jump for him and get my grip on his pistol arm. You'll hear me call, and in you will rush. The quicker the better, for he is as strong a man as I, and I may have more than I can manage, but I allow that I can hold him till you come. That's a good plan, said McGinty. The lodge will owe you a debt for this. I guess when I move out of the chair I can put a name to the man that's coming after me. Sure, Counselor, I'm little more than a recruit, said McMurdo, but his face showed what he thought of the great man's compliment. When he had returned home, he made his own preparations for the grim evening in front of him. First he cleaned, oiled, and loaded his Smith & Wesson revolver. Then he surveyed the room in which the detective was to be trapped. It was a large apartment, with a long deal table in the center and the big stove at one side. At each of the other sides were windows. 
There were no shutters on these, only light curtains which drew across. McMurdo examined these attentively. No doubt it must have struck him that the apartment was very exposed for so secret a meeting, yet its distance from the road made it of less consequence. Finally, he discussed the matter with his fellow lodger. Scanlan, though a scourer, was an inoffensive little man who was too weak to stand against the opinion of his comrades, but was secretly horrified by the deeds of blood at which he had sometimes been forced to assist. McMurdo told him shortly what was intended. And if I were you, Mike Scanlan, I would take a night off and keep clear of it. There will be bloody work here before morning. Well, indeed then, Mac, Scanlan answered. It's not the will, but the nerve that is wanting in me. When I saw Manager Dunn go down at the colliery yonder, it was just more than I could stand. I'm not made for it, same as you or McGinty. If the Lodge will think none the worse of me, I'll just do as you advise and leave you to yourselves for the evening. The men came in good time as arranged. They were outwardly respectable citizens, well-clad and cleanly, but a judge of faces would have read little hope for Bertie Edwards in those hard mouths and remorseless eyes. There was not a man in the room whose hands had not been reddened a dozen times before. They were as hardened to human murder as a butcher to sheep. Foremost, of course, both in appearance and in guilt, was the formidable boss. Haraway, the secretary, was a lean, bitter man with a long, scraggy neck and nervous, jerky limbs, a man of incorruptible fidelity where the finances of the order were concerned, and with no notion of justice or honesty to anyone beyond. The treasurer, Carter was a middle-aged man with an impassive, rather sulky expression and a yellow parchment skin. He was a capable organizer, and the actual details of nearly every outrage had sprung from his plotting brain. The two Willoughbys were men of action, tall, lithe young fellows with determined faces, while their companion, Tiger Cormac, a heavy, dark youth was feared even by his own comrades for the ferocity of his disposition. These were the men who assembled that night under the roof of McMurdo for the killing of the Pinkerton detective. Their host had placed whiskey upon the table, and they had hastened to prime themselves for the work before them. Baldwin and Cormac were already half-drunk, and the liquor had brought out all their ferocity. Cormac placed his hands on the stove for an instant. It had been lighted, for the nights were still cold. That will do, said he, with an oath. Aye, said Baldwin, catching his meaning. If he is strapped to that, we will have the truth out of him. We'll have the truth out of him, never fear, said McMurdo. He had nerves of steel, this man. For though the whole weight of the affair was on him, his manner was as cool and unconcerned as ever. The others marked it and applauded. "'You are the one to handle him,' said the boss, approvingly. "'Not a warning will he get till your hand is on his throat. "'It's a pity there are no shutters to your windows.' McMurdo went from one to the other and drew the curtains tighter. "'Sure no one can spy upon us now. "'It's close upon the hour.' "'Maybe he won't come. "'Maybe he'll get a sniff of danger,' said the secretary." He'll come, never fear, McMurdo answered. He is as eager to come as you can be to see him. Hark to that. 
They all sat like wax figures, some with their glasses arrested halfway to their lips. Three loud knocks had sounded at the door. Hush. McMurdo raised his hand in caution. An exulting glance went round the circle and hands were laid upon their weapons. Not a sound for your lives, McMurdo whispered, as he went from the room, closing the door carefully behind him. With strained ears, the murderers waited. They counted the steps of their comrade down the passage. Then they heard him open the outer door. There were a few words as of greeting. Then they were aware of a strange step inside and of an unfamiliar voice. An instant later came the slam of the door and the turning of the key in the lock. Their prey was safe within the trap. Tiger Cormac laughed horribly, and Boss McGinty clapped his great hand across his mouth. "'Be quiet, you fool,' he whispered. "'You'll be the undoing of us yet.' There was a mutter of conversation from the next room. It seemed interminable. Then the door opened, and McMurdo appeared, his finger upon his lip. He came to the end of the table and looked round at them. A subtle change had come over him. His manner was as of one who has great work to do. His face had set into granite firmness. His eyes shone with a fierce excitement behind his spectacles. He had become a visible leader of men. They stared at him with eager interest, but he said nothing. Still, with the same singular gaze, he looked from man to man. "'Well,' cried Boss McGinty at last, "'is he here? Is Bertie Edwards here?' "'Yes,' McMurdo answered slowly. "'Bertie Edwards is here. "'I am Bertie Edwards.' There were ten seconds after that brief speech during which the room might have been empty, so profound was the silence. The hissing of a kettle upon the stove rose sharp and strident to the ear. Seven white faces, all turned upward to this man who dominated them, were set motionless with utter terror. Then, with a sudden shivering of glass, a bristle of glistening rifle barrels broke through each window, while the curtains were torn from their hangings. At the sight, Boss McGinty gave the roar of a wounded bear and plunged for the half-opened door. A leveled revolver met him there with the stern blue eyes of Captain Marvin of the mine police gleaming behind the sights. The boss recoiled and fell back into his chair. "'You're safer there, Counselor,' said the man, whom they had known as McMurdo. "'And you, Baldwin, if you don't take your hand off your pistol, you'll cheat the hangman yet.' Pull it out, or by the Lord that made me, there, that will do. There are forty armed men round this house, and you can figure it out for yourself what chance you have. Take their pistols, Marvin. There was no possible resistance under the menace of those rifles. The men were disarmed, sulky, sheepish, and amazed. They still sat round the table. I'd like to say a word to you before we separate, said the man who had trapped them. I guess we may not meet again until you see me on the stand in the courthouse. I'll give you something to think over between now and then. You know me now for what I am. At least I can put my cards on the table. 
I am Bertie Edwards of Pinkerton's. I was chosen to break up your gang. I had a hard and dangerous game to play. Not a soul, not one soul, not my nearest and dearest, knew that I was playing it. Only Captain Marvin here and my employers knew that. But it's over tonight, thank God. And I am the winner. The seven pale, rigid faces looked up at him. There was unappeasable hatred in their eyes. He read the relentless threat. Maybe you think that the game is not over yet. Well, I take my chance of that. Anyhow, some of you will take no further hand, and there are sixty more besides yourselves that will see a jail this night. I'll tell you this, that when I was put upon this job, I never believed there was such a society as yours. I thought it was paper talk, and that I would prove it so. They told me it was to do with the freemen, so I went to Chicago and was made one. Then I was surer than ever that it was just paper talk, for I found no harm in the society, but a deal of good. Still, I had to carry out my job, and I came to the coal valleys. When I reached this place, I learned that I was wrong, and that it wasn't a dime novel after all. So I stayed to look after it. I never killed a man in Chicago. I never minted a dollar in my life. Those I gave you were as good as any others. But I never spent money better. But I knew the way into your good wishes. And so I pretended to you that the law was after me. It all worked, just as I thought. So I joined your infernal lodge. And I took my share in your counsels. Maybe they will say that I was as bad as you. They can say what they like, so long as I get you. But what is the truth? The night I joined you beat up old man Stanger. I could not warn him, for there was no time. But I held your hand, Baldwin, when you would have killed him. If ever I have suggested things so as to keep my place among you, they were things which I knew I could prevent. I could not save Dunn and Menzies, for I did not know enough but I will see that their murderers are hanged. I gave Chester Wilcox warning, so that when I blew his house in, he and his folk were in hiding. There was many a crime that I could not stop, but if you look back and think how often your man came home the other road, or was down in town when you went for him, or stayed indoors when you thought he would come out, you'll see my work. You blasted traitor hissed McGinty through his closed teeth. Aye, John McGinty, you may call that if it eases your smart. You and your like have been the enemy of God and man in these parts. It took a man to get between you and the poor devils of men and women that you held under your grip. There was just one way of doing it, and I did it. You call me a traitor, but I guess there's many a thousand will call me a deliverer that went down into hell to save them. I've had three months of it. I wouldn't have three such months again if they let me loose in the treasury at Washington for it. I had to stay till I had it all, every man and every secret right here in this hand. I'd have waited a little longer if it hadn't come to my knowledge that my secret was coming out. A letter had come into the town that would have set you wise to it all. Then I had to act, 
and act quickly. I have nothing more to say to you, except that when my time comes, I'll die the easier when I think of the work I have done in this valley. Now, Marvin, I'll keep you no more. Take them in and get it over. There's little more to tell. Scanlan had been given a sealed note to be left at the address of Miss Etty Shafter, a mission which he had accepted with a wink and a knowing smile. In the early hours of the morning, a beautiful woman and a much-muffled man boarded a special train which had been sent by the railroad company and made a swift, unbroken journey out of the land of danger. It was the last time that ever either Etty or her lover set foot in the Valley of Fear. Ten days later, they were married in Chicago with old Jacob Shafter as witness of the wedding. The trial of the scourers was held far from the place where their adherents might have terrified the guardians of the law. In vain they struggled. In vain the money of the lodge, money squeezed by blackmail out of the whole countryside, was spent like water in the attempt to save them. That cold, clear, unimpassioned statement from one who knew every detail of their lives, their organization, and their crimes was unshaken by all the wiles of their defenders. At last, after so many years, they were broken and scattered. The cloud was lifted forever from the valley. McGinty met his fate upon the scaffold, cringing and whining when the last hour came. Eight of his chief followers shared his fate. Fifty-odd had various degrees of imprisonment. The work of Bertie Edwards was complete. And yet, as he had guessed, the game was not over yet. There was another hand to be played, and yet another and another. Ted Baldwin, for one, had escaped the scaffold. So had the Willoughbys. So had several others of the fiercest spirits of the gang. For ten years they were out of the world, and then came a day when they were free once more. A day which Edwards, who knew his men, was very sure would be an end of his life of peace. They had sworn an oath on all that they thought holy to have his blood as a vengeance for their comrades, and well they strove to keep their vow. From Chicago he was chased, after two attempts so near success that it was sure that the third would get him. From Chicago he went under a changed name to California, and it was there that the light went for a time out of his life when Etty Edwards died. Once again he was nearly killed, and once again under the name of Douglas he worked in a lonely canyon, where with an English partner named Barker he amassed a fortune. At last there came a warning to him that the bloodhounds were on his track once more, and he cleared only just in time for England. And thence came the John Douglas, who for a second time married a worthy mate, and lived for five years as a Sussex County gentleman, a life which ended with the strange happenings of which we have heard. Thanks for listening. Read more about this week's narrator in the show notes. You can send your thoughts to Pod 
at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at ImprobablePod and our website, HoweverImprobablePodcast.com, where you can find transcripts, the research behind the episode, and suggestions for further reading. If you enjoy the show and can spare a moment, please rate and review. However Improbable is created by Marissa Vicario and Sarah Kolb, with apologies to Arthur Conan Doyle. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, dear listeners, believe us to be very sincerely yours.